HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Kiva, a Greenhorns partner and nonprofit that has helped hundreds of farmers raise over $2 million in microloans, all without charging any interest or fees. Find out more at us.kiva.org slash greenhorns. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Greenhorns Radio, Radio for Young Farmers by Young Farmers. This is your host, Severin. I am calling in you now from Santa Fe Community College, here flyering for the Our Land Symposium. It's a big deal because I spent a lot of the summer hunched over inviting speakers from around the country to come and talk about the landscape scale issues that we faced in our land use, land governance, land transition, land access, land succession, land affordability uh, crises, and the opportunity that there is for land repair, land commoning, community land trusts. And that is exciting. It's called Our Land 2. It's a symposium over the course of seven days and an exhibit that lasts all month. And it's very wonderful, and I hope that if you can't come in person or tell your people that you will um, tell people near here to come and listen to it online. Speaking of land, today we have a landscape interpretation of a different kind. We're going to talk about natural navigation with our host, Tristan Gooley, who writes about these things and has studied this work. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. And he's coming all the way from England, I should have mentioned. Would you mind introducing yourself briefly and the work that you do? Yeah. Um, yeah, you got, you got my name right. It's a bit, bit unusual. Tristan Gooley. Um, and natural navigation has been my, my work full-time for, for 10 years, but part-time all of my life. And it's, uh, it's the, the beautiful and rare art of knowing how to find your way using nature. So people probably guess, you know, sun, moon, and stars. Um, your listeners are probably familiar with some of the plant techniques, but uh, there might be quite a few that they're not familiar with. Uh, and then the animals and, and all sorts of other wonderful things as well. 
the kinds of people that are using these methods traditionally? Well, it's it's really interesting because I think um, navigation is one of our, you know, it's one of our fundamental skills. Um, nobody can go a day without eating, drinking, sleeping, and navigating pretty much. But a, a mistake I think we make as, as societies all over the world is, is to think everything's about necessity. And it applies as much to, to navigation as food. When we think about the, the, the struggle with food that societies have had for thousands of years, we, you know, we made the mistake of thinking it's all about quantity, and then that leads to all sorts of other problems. And then we realize, well, actually, quality and, and, and all the thought that goes into the difference between you know, food that's well-made and, and, and enjoyed for, for what it can be, the same is true of navigation. You know, if, if we think that navigation is all about you know, the fastest way of getting from A to B, uh, we miss all of the fun that our ancestors were having when they were using the stars and, and all the other fun methods. So many of us are becoming aware of the trade routes that shaped expansion, colonial expansion, and as, you know, here we are over here in the colonies uh, or the ex-colonies of the United Kingdom. We were, we were a shipping, we were the product of a shipping empire, and many of our ancestors were on board ships, were captains or were uh, shanghaied into service as sailors. Uh, others of us came as slaves on ships. Others of us came uh, from Spain through Mexico. Others of us were here already. Anyway, many of us had something to do with navigating our way into this territory. Um, can you talk a little bit about the nautical traditions that inform your work? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've spent a lot of time over the last few years researching this um, for a book I wrote recently called How to Read Water. And it's it's, uh, if you just take the idea that whenever we look at water, uh, we never see the same thing twice. It doesn't matter if we're looking at a puddle or a small pond or a lake or a river or a, a sea or a massive ocean. It's pretty – well, it is. It's impossible to see the same thing twice. And when we start to ask the question why, that takes us into some of the skills that um, all of our ancestors used. I mean, some, some of the ones you mentioned there, but we can go back even, even earlier um, – by the time human beings are writing anything down, so the start of our understanding of, of history in many ways, uh, most of the most of the land masses in, in the world have been uh, have been populated, and we have to ask how did that happen? Um, and the answer tends to be, you know, a nice combination of of, of skill, trial and error, um, a lot of courage, um, uh, some happy stories and some sad stories. But uh, but but for me, the interesting part. Um, that we can still we can still use these skills today. So, just you know, what what it might appear to one person on a beach uh, to be just just waves to another person is you know that's like a it's a sign it's a code it's telling you what the weather's about to do it's telling you you know whether there's land just out of sight um, and actually we can see those patterns even in even in a pond you know even if you're several hundred miles from the coast you can still see exactly the same patterns. So I know that the Polynesians were looking at waves and wave patterns in their navigation of their archipelagic diaspora. Can you talk tell that story? Yeah, the the um the Polynesians are are you know there are other cultures that did it the Vikings the Arab navigators and, and quite a few others, but the Polynesians were particularly interesting culturally because their expertise was cut off from the rest of the world. 
Um, it wasn't until the 18th century when um, a few mainly European navigators started passing through the Pacific Islands that, that we were even aware of what was going on out there. And in a nutshell, what they were doing was they treated the, the sea uh, in the way we treated land. So, you know, most Western societies, um, when, when we think of maps, we think, okay, well, the sea is the blue bit, and then when we get to land, we're going to do our best to work out where the hills are. We'll give a bit of information about where the rivers are. Uh, if it's a really detailed map, you might mark the difference between the different types of forest, coniferous or, or deciduous. Whereas the, the, the Polynesian, the, the Pacific Islanders, took that level of detail looking at the shape of, of um, swells and waves within the, within the ocean. So for them, once you're on land, navigating's over because the islands are generally quite small, low-lying. You can see from one side to the other and a few of them. Um, but in between, the, what, what a lot of people assume is just sort of a random mix of waves, to, to these expert navigators, those, those were, they looked at those the same way we would look at a range of hills, as in there's a character there, there's a way of reading it. And once you understand the relationship between the wind and the sea, it's surprisingly easy to make sense of. And, and as I'm saying, you can practice these skills by by looking at the way waves bump off a rock in a, in a, in a pond or even off a tiny stone in a, in a puddle, exactly the same stuff's going on. And, uh, and it's a great way into uh, what, is, what was considered a totally inaccessible skill. And so this kind of observation that was, of course, crucial and necessary before we had sonar and radar and weather predicting software and agencies devoted to gathering data. Um, oh, actually, that reminds me of a really cool guy I read about uh, in the 1880s who had a fleet of 5,000 boats who were filling in data about going around Cape Horn. It was like the very beginning of an open source weather collection agency. Did you know about that guy? I mean, it's, it's, I don't think I know exactly the one you're talking about, um, but it sounds a little bit like um, uh, the sort of stuff that uh, somebody called Fitzroy was doing. He was, he was, um, but, the, but the, yeah, you're right, there was this, this sort of pioneering time where people were, were trying to make sense of a whole load of observations, and so people just start to take an interest in a way that, you know, the pressure drops and, and then the bad weather arrives, stuff that's old news to us, you know. Um, particularly those of us who work outdoors, your, your listeners, me, and, and, and quite a few others. Um, but, you know, there were, there were things that indigenous cultures had, had known for, for long before Western societies started formalizing this. So a good example is, um, you know, many, pretty much all nor, northern hemisphere indigenous societies were aware that when you see a halo around the sun or the moon or the stars, that's a sign that the weather may deteriorate because... In, in modern terms, it's, it's, it's the high ice clouds. It's cirrus and then cirrostratus, cirrostratus, which creates that halo. And many of your, your listeners will be well familiar with that. It doesn't guarantee bad weather because cirrostratus doesn't guarantee that a front's coming through, but it's, it's just one part of the jigsaw. So, yeah, all, all, of this, all of this stuff sort of fits together. And, and there's a slight sort of arrogance in, you know, in, in a lot of contemporary thought that we started to make sense of the weather, you know, one, two hundred maybe years ago. Whereas, in fact, you know, there were, there were people 2,000 years ago who, who were undertaking journeys, and they wouldn't set off if, if they saw the halo around the sun or if they, if they noticed the wind direction change by even 30 degrees. They'd say, okay, well, that's not normal. I'm not, I'm not going to set off. So uh, 
that brings us to uh, that's not normal. And again, uh, we now have we now we the growers we rely on weather predictions better than the almanac. Uh, often, often a result of a very expensive government satellites that's linked with defense spending and research and benefit from that kind of climate awareness. But we also are, as growers, observing a lot of changes uh, in the climate. Just even in our few years of experience, this past summer had record droughts in the northeast of the United States. Obviously, the past few years have been record droughts in the West Coast. And, uh, you know, we, we are experiencing major changes. I wonder if you could talk about um, how other pe- people and places are interpreting the changes that they experience. Yeah, there's, there's absolutely – the one thing the whole world, I think, is pretty much agreed on is that, that there's a lot of change going on. The, there's a lot of debate about, you know, how much is, is, is man-made. Um, and I certainly am I'm not in a position or authority to be able to – to say I have the final answer on that. Um, I mean, we have a history of, um, you know, over over worrying about things, and then you know whether it's technology or other stuff like that. And, and this, if I'm honest, this is an area I really just do not know. I mean, the, the scientists are not unanimous, but there is a very very, you know, large majority saying that there's, there's, there's man-made factors. There's always been climate change. The climate's never been static. Uh, it's just. You know, if I'm honest, I, um, I, you know, the scientists know better than me, and I have to go with with what I hear there. But then I, when I look at historical records, I, um, you know, we were having um, um, all sorts of, you know, crazy, crazy weather ph- phenomenon as far back as, as history goes. So it's really, really hard um, to to get perspective on these things. And and I, yeah, I mean, I just have to. It's one of those areas that the things I can say with certainty. You know, I can tell you. You know, you can find the North Star using, um, you know, all sorts of wonderful different constellations. I can say that with certainty. When it comes to comes to climate change, I just have to hold my hands up and say, you know, there are probably better qualified people than me to to uh, to, to give a, a, an authoritative opinion on that. Well, then let's uh, knowing what we cannot control seems to be one of the key things, <laughs> and. Uh, you know, one thing I do know is that there are efforts uh, in phy- uh, phenology, phen- phenology, phenology in collecting information about the first flowerings and the first time you see animals and when the first frost is and that kind of data. So there is a whole kind of citizen science initiative around gathering highly locally specific biological indicators. Yep. But let's go back to your area of focus because that's what we're going to talk about. Um, what is it that you're teaching in your workshops? And can you give us a couple of lessons that we can learn over the radio? Yeah, well, I think very sort of sort of relevant to your your listeners will be natural navigation can be thought of sort of, um, uh, you know, for two sides of a coin. You can have sort of farming and, and other you know, um, uh, ways of, of looking at the landscape, uh, like gardening, on, on one side of the coin, and natural navigation and other things are on the same, on a different side of the same coin. So, to give you actual examples, you know, there are many, many plants um, that can tolerate uh, wet ground. 
you know, um, and I'm, I'm quite often in wild areas and I'm looking out for plants, you know, like rushes, and they're telling me the ground is wet there. So they're, they're basically saying to me, if you head this way, you'll get wet. But a farmer is obviously going to look at the ground differently and say, okay, well, you know, um, you know, th this type of soil is, is, is very dry. This type of soil is very wet. This, this bit of soil maybe has got a bit of salt in. Um, this type of soil is very acidic. This type of soil is very alkaline. All of those things can be used for navigation. So, you know, if I'm at the top of a hill, um, I'm looking down and I see, okay, if I go that way, there are a load of beech trees. If I go that way, I, I see a load of willows. That, that's, again, that's telling me that, you know, okay, I'm looking for a river. Let's head towards the willows. That's where the river will be. All of that is, is just a different, different side of the same coin to, to um, you know, our, our, our sort of planting, putting plants in. And the, and the same, thing, same thing with animals. You know, animals will thrive in, on, on certain soils because there's certain foods, and, and other animals will really struggle, which is why when you look at the, the, the map of, of, of farming patterns around the world, there's, you know, these, these, great, these great trends to do, you know, the soil's a massive thing, but also the amount of sunlight, the amount of rain, the amount of... I mean, exposure is a good example. Um, if you go up to a certain altitude, farming becomes, you know, um, you, know you, you move from arable to, to pasture, and then it becomes impossible because it's, it's too high and it's too exposed. Well, in natural navigation, we're, we're doing the same thing, but with a slightly different perspective. So as you move up from a, a valley up, up the hills into the mountains, you move from deciduous trees to, con to conifers to the tree line where there are no trees, then you move on to the grasses, and then you move on to, to, to bare rocks. But within that, there are subtleties. So trees get shorter with altitude and, and that sort of thing. So, so you can see that as a plant um, you know, altimeter. It, it's telling you how high you are. Um, and then you look at the shape of forests. You can work out north, south, east, and west. There are, there are 19 ways you can navigate using a tree, um, starting from the, you know, the, the fairly obvious, as in you get more growth on the side the sun is. So if you're in the northern hemisphere, you, you get more particularly north of the tropics, you get more, um, more growth on the, the and south side. So of how does that apply? How, can, how would that help, for instance, situating an orchard would be something that new agrarians are doing a lot, or figuring out where to situate a shed for cows to be sheltered, or figuring out where to put a fence? Um, often we are learning from our elders that we should do everything with electric first before we commit anything. Well, and most of us stay with electric almost forever, but... Um, can you explain a little bit how, in locating some of these landscape features of the agrarian uh, infrastructure, we would be using some of these techniques? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I mean, if you know, there's probably a farmer somewhere in the world where conditions are so perfect that whatever they do, uh, things work out well. But, but my understanding of farming uh, is, is generally isn't like that. So you, you're tending to either deal with, with too much of something or too little of something most of the time. Um, if you take, you know, very, very hot parts of the world, um, you know, breeze is a good thing by and large because you're, you're getting the temperature down on average to, to something nearer you want. So you would, you would if, if you're putting a building, uh, you'd put it side on to the prevailing wind so you're getting more breeze. If you're in a part of the world where exposure is a problem and, and, and low temperatures are, are more of an issue, then you, you situate a building in line with the prevailing winds. Uh, and, and these, you know, there's lots of similarities between that and architecture all over the world. So not, not that far from where I live, uh, when you go up into the mountains of places like Wales and Scotland, and, and it'll be true of large parts of the states and, and all over the world as well, you, you find these buildings are exactly in line with the, the prevailing wind direction. But when you go to the tropics, you find that they're, they're, they're side on to the winds. Um, uh, you could, there are all sorts of subtleties. So if, if you're in a place that's getting lots and lots of snow um, each
each winter. You know, but pe- people who who are in that situation, you know, learn this learn this very quickly. So I might not be <laughs> teaching anybody in in terms of your listeners this, but a lot of people I work with aren't familiar with this. That you know, when when snow comes in with the wind, there's an actual pattern in terms of how much of it gets deposited on the on the lee on the downwind side of any obstacle. So it's not as simple as it just gets dumped on the on the lee side. There's there's a there's a dumping and then there's a gap and then there's another little dumping and that sort of thing. And you know, so so once you get used to all those patterns, you can situate all of these things to to, to help you. You can't. None of us, I, I think, is ever trying to beat nature. We're just trying to sort of work out you know smart ways of working working with it, aren't we? Well, and I'm thinking about, you know, wind blocks and hedgerows. And in the upper Midwest, we have snow. People plant hedges against prevailing snow. I guess the question would be, in the beginning of starting to tune in your natural navigator, other than reading your wonderful book uh, and your wonderful essay in the Almanac, what would be some kind of beginner practices or daily practices that you could recommend? Well, the one I, I say, the very first one I say to people um, is, is just ask yourself the question, which way am I looking uh, at times when you don't need it? You know, you're just, you know, you're out there doing a job and you, you just look up and you go, which way am I looking? And if, if somebody's very used to doing that, if, if somebody's never done it before, I say to them, you know, just have a stab north, south, east or west. Uh, and, and for people who, who aren't used to outdoors, that, that's a challenge enough to start with. You know, once you know where the sun is, that's very straightforward. So then the next stage, I say to people, don't don't just go for north, south, east, west. Let's be a bit more ambitious. You know, you you five degrees east to south. Why? You know, and that brings us right into being really finely tuned to um, all of the astronomical clues, the sun, moon and stars. I mean, using using the moon is, you know, really accurately is 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 really quite challenging. Uh, And there are nice, simple methods. You join the horns of a crescent moon in a line and extend that down to the horizon and, and and you'll be looking um, south in, from most northern parts of the world, but to actually use the moon really accurately takes uh, takes an awful lot of practice. Stars are stars are they're both straightforward and fun. So, using the Big Dipper or Cassiopeia or any other other of these quite straightforward constellations, you can find north within a degree very very quickly. But you know the difference between that and being quite advanced and just seeing maybe a break in the clouds and seeing four stars and going okay, you know I'm going to try and work out north just from those four stars. That that's a different game. Um, and then, you know, it's an overcast day. There's no wind. Um, you, you're going to try and find which way you're looking just from, you know, the lichens on a tree or, or just from the way the animals are behaving, um, uh, those, those sorts of things. And what I would say to people, it doesn't matter if you, you get it wrong because you're not doing it to save your life. You're not doing it to cross a great ocean or something. You're doing it to, to tune in and, and just see your, see your landscape in a, in a slightly different way. And then this tuning in, I mean, I this is really wonderful to hear because, you know, you start really noticing the patterns of where the birds are singing and, and where the sounds are located in the landscape and becoming aware of those little subtle changes. Um, what I'm wondering is the kind of unexpected rewards that you discover um, as a result. Well, it's like today I just saw... I just saw um, I saw a coyote, and I heard it before I saw it, which was kind of great because it was so quiet. But many of us aren't having so much quiet. But what happens to the observer from the observing? It um, 
I think I think the real key is is not to not to feel we have to do this that it's it's a chore it's something you have to you know it's another thing on our to do list for the day, but actually just to find ways of making it fun. So almost all of my work is 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 this idea of clues. So the thing I say to people is every single thing you see outdoors is a clue to something. So just take something we're all probably very familiar with the stinging nettle. You know how can that be a clue to something? Well. Stinging nettles don't grow everywhere. They grow in phosphate-rich soil. Phosphate-rich soil is nearly always a sign of civilization. So you start noticing in farms, farms are actually stuffed with stinging nettles because of, you know, particularly farms that are using fertilizers and things like that. But even ones that aren't, there'll be animals, and the animals lead to phosphate accumulation in certain places. But if we, if we take a slightly wilder perspective on that, you can walk for, you know, 20 miles across the wild and you won't see a stinging nettle. The second you see one, it's saying to you, ah, somebody was here before me, and nearly always it's a sign of... Um, humans having done something, lived there, worked there, died there. Um, so even something as humble as the stinging nettle is part of a, a bigger map. And then all those are just more and more and more clues that we can track. Yeah, that, that's it. It's, um, you know, absolutely every plant, every animal, even every building, um, the way people behave, all of it is part of a map if, if, we, if we choose to see it that way. I mean, just a just a fun sort of town example. You know, if you're if you're in a big town or city and you're completely lost and you just want to get some handle on something, if you go against the flow of people in the morning or with the flow of people in the late afternoon, you find a station. Because um, we're all, we're all individuals, but like all the animals, all the other animals in the world, we we behave in the, in flock type ways as well. So uh, yeah, there, there's nothing that isn't part of a map. And then once we have the map, then we have the power to be more strategic in our interventions and more tactical in our initiatives and potentially more resilient in our enterprises. Yeah, totally. It's it's about awareness. In my experience, if you tell somebody to be aware of nature and the outdoors, you get nowhere. But if you show them some fun techniques, you know, starting with starting maybe with a few stars and then showing them, you know, a dozen different ways to find north using a tree people don't resist. They go, yeah, that's fun. I'll do that. And, and those, that leads to an awareness which, you know, I know many farmers have naturally through their work, but, um, you know, an awful lot of people, a lot of, a lot of people who spend all their time in towns, you know, this is, this, is, this is the way I get them interested. I say, don't, you know, don't try and connect with nature because you feel you ought to, you know, but try some of these techniques because they're fun and they work. Well, I think it's a pretty exciting pathway into the wild and into a wild inside. Um, similar, a lot of similarities to the guy and uh, Tom Brown school, who we are, who's kind of famous, cult famous over here. You know that guy? I do. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've read uh, quite a few of his books. Yeah. Yeah, he's big in the Pine Barrens. In he's in New Jersey, studying a lot of native ways. And those guys are really fun, those trackers. It's fun to cruise around with trackers and artists. Fun to cruise around with, like, being with wild dogs a little bit. Yeah, I mean, so, uh, natural navigation and tracking, again, you know, there's a part of natural navigation that sort of marries up with almost every outdoor um, pursuit. So if you take tracking... If you're... Um, I know there are huge ranches in the States and Australia and other places where, because it's it's private land. You don't have a sort of state map of it, and you don't have signs at all the junctions. And, and one of the techniques that, that, that I've seen and, and been told loads of times is that if you're going from a small, a small track or road or track, you know, route of any kind that meets a major one, 
if you just look on the ground, you can see which way people turn most often, and that'll always be the, the, the route home. Um, because people tend to, you know, and it's the same with farm animals. In, in the UK, I can always find a farm by looking for, for the, the corner gates because it's, it's always easier to get animals out through a corner than through the middle of a, the side of a field. So there are all these different techniques that, are, you, know, it, you know, tracking obviously is, is much more detailed in some areas, but, but that's where natural navigation and tracking kind of meet. There's always these, these fun little spots. Well, I hope that we have uh, inspired some people to go and check out Natural Navigation and Tristan, Tristan Gourley. Yeah. And uh, also, of course, your essay is in the New Farmer's Almanac, which comes out in November. And um, it's a great essay. It's full of great essays, actually. I think there's a, almost 100 essays in there. Great value for 20 bucks or buy a box and sell them on. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. Would you want to just give the names of your uh, titles and your website for everyone well, who's listening? Thanks a lot. Yeah, the, the website is naturalnavigator.com, uh, and my books are The Natural Navigator, The Lost Art of Reading Nature Signs, and How to Read Water. Thank you so much for what you do, and thank you all for listening to another episode of Greenhorns Radio, sponsored by Kiva. And please, please, please notice what you're noticing and keep a good journal. It might be important someday. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Till my love for you grows.